The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Strategies to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. What happens when the owner of a business or senior management of a small company goes missing in action, either death, disability, some other problem? That causes a lot of disruption. Here to talk about with us today, Sean McBride. Sean, how are you, man? I'm doing good. How you doing, Joel? Good. Thanks for thanks for joining us. So these are big problems, and uh, we can all imagine. On the one hand, everybody'd say, hey, "Listen, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Everything is great. Let's uh, let's have the boss take a few days off." But what happens? If they're not coming back because there's some serious uh, situation takes place, yeah, how do I mean, companies deal with that? You know, you really have to have a plan in place because what happens, unfortunately, is if you don't have a plan, it becomes a real mess. Often the ownership interest is going to just transfer under state law or the will, usually to a spouse or to children. And at that point, it's everybody's guessing what's going to happen. And we've had a lot of horror stories over the years where the children start arguing over the future of the company. One of them wants to pull money out of the business. One wants to grow it. Uh, maybe the spouse steps in. They just don't know how to run the business, and the business is out of business within three to four years. So we need to build something more robust. And the forward-looking clients that have heard the horror stories and have seen what's happened to other people start to build a plan to protect from that situation. Well, let's, let's talk about the difference between uh, an economic interest and you know a management interest in a company. Uh, you know, what you're talking about is the children come and taking over the whole package. Right. Sometimes uh, maybe they just need to get certain kinds of rights. And that's, is that part of what the plan does? That's, that's where you want to get forward thinking. And that's, that's, a good, that's a good issue to point out. Most companies, at least family-owned businesses, often the ownership and the management are tied together, particularly in the first generation. The owner runs the business. They own yeah. the business. It's very clear. And they are, but, they are the business. Right, right. They are the business. And, but Usually over time, it grows and starts getting some scale to it. You've got employees. And now at some point, the business gets big enough. It can run itself without that owner being there. But you need that strategic direction. And exactly what you're talking about is one of the key issues is separating the ownership from the management. And a lot of people, you know, the first generation in particular, don't get around to separating those two pieces. And so you have an issue because when the owner's no longer gone, now the ownership and the management transfers and that may or may not be what you want to happen, depending on the capability of the new owners to run the business. Sometimes they don't want to run the business. A lot of times, children in particular, are off. they have new careers, they're doing new jobs, they're in different cities. They don't want to come back and run the business. They don't have the attention. Well, you know, and, and, a, and a lot of times, these older businesses aren't too sexy. So <laughs> That's right. 
they're, they're, they're not, they're not the kind of things the kids want to jump into and, and roll their sleeves up and get involved in. So uh, exactly. all kinds of issues. Exactly. Parents might be making great money, you know, doing light manufacturing or doing distribution. And it's just not really what people think about as being cool these days or it's right. not cutting edge. So a lot of times kids don't want to go back and, you know, run a manufacturing plant, you know. Right. Even though, even though that's uh, that's where the money is. So so how you know, listen, you're first. Let's let's make sure everybody knows your background. You're an attorney. You're a CPA. I yep. mean, you've been around the block on, on a number of things. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, that's, I spent most of my career in large law firms, about t- 10 years in the largest law firms of the world until I started my own law firm six years ago. And then I've built a consulting and business strategy practice, really pulling these issues out. Almost everything I do deals with ownership and control of the business and who runs the business. So I've seen years of these situations. And, you know, most of the time, we're, or a lot of the time, we're able to get in early and build foundations to prevent these issues from happening. But unfortunately, I also get called on the back end when something happens and then things yeah. start going sideways, uh, which is why, you know, we want to think ahead for these issues, which is hopefully, you know, maybe you've got somebody out there listening and starts seeing this, spotting it for themselves or their clients says, wow, we need to be proactive and have a plan in place because we could have a real train wreck if, if something happens to the owner. Yeah. And, and there needs to be uh, a transition plan. The children have to be prepared. Uh, and, and this is not estate planning. This is, this is something different than that, right? There's a step beyond estate planning. Estate planning is a piece of this, right? We obviously need to transfer that ownership to wherever it's going to go. Spouse or children is the typical answer. But beyond just transferring it, we need to have a plan to continue the business, continue the profitability, make sure it has the professional level of management it needs if the spouse or children don't want to step in and do that. Even if the children want to step in, assuming there's multiple children, we need to understand clearly which child or which children are going to run the business and make the decisions yeah. and how those decisions are going to be made. Because that's another problem that happens. We transfer the business to say three children and they have different visions on the business. And then now we have a fight going on. All right. So, uh, so the parents uh, don't really want to uh, play favorites and they don't want to, you know, make some decisions. So they say, um, all three kids get it equally and they're just going to have to get along. And I don't want to, uh, you know, make a decision and have them not like me going forward here or whatever. Right. What's the impact of that? Well, what will happen there typically, and it all depends on the agreements you have in place, but if you don't really do any special planning under most state laws, you'll end up with three owners that have three votes. And here's what becomes interesting is each child will owe a duty to the other child to maximize the profit of the business. So now you have three children that have duties to each other to maximize profit of business. If two of them group together and say, we're going to do this, and the third one doesn't like it, they have, they have the right to bring a lawsuit in a court that says, I don't like what the other siblings did because I don't think it was in my best interest as a stockholder. Let's go to court and duke it out. And this is not what most parents uh, probably want to leave in their wake is you know the possibility their children end up in a courtroom fighting other ownership of the interest. And it, it happens all the time. It was one of the first cases I worked on out of law school was this. And my career has seen lots of them dotted throughout it where you get three, four, or five children and they start fighting over what's happening with the business and they're spending all their money in the courthouse. So so the best thing would be for the parent to say that uh, Sam is going to be in charge and Mary and Sally are going to not be in charge. Yep. Uh, but that creates all sorts of other problems. How do families deal with these kinds of things? Well, you know, one, one thing that some people like, and I, I like this solution, there's, there's no one size fits all, but one good solution is to do either a sale of the business or a quasi sale of the business. So, you know, the first generation is no longer there. Second generation is no longer there. 
you know, bring in an outside buyer, just sell the business to buy the money, or let one of the children buy it for the market price, and then they can take the business forward. The other children step out. That keeps brothers and sisters from being co-owners of businesses and being accountable to each other. It's a really a much cleaner process if you do something like that. They just have to be careful that they get an appraisal, that there's a fair price and that everybody agrees, right? So that uh, if one if one child ends up with the business and the other two don't, that they don't feel like the guy got an extra good deal or something special right. didn't happen. Yeah, what I always tell people to do, and this comes up, you know, with the death situation, which we're talking about, but also disability, disagreements, divorces, the four Ds I deal with so often, is we tell people to plan ahead and have something that's very objective. You want something mechanical to value that business. So the smallest businesses will use a formula. They'll use prior years, earnings, times, and multiple. But as we get bigger, you'll bring in an outside valuation person. But you don't want an agreement just says, we will sell the company for whatever valuation a third-party evaluation person says. You need to say who that third-party valuation person is going to be and what process or procedure they're going to use. The more specificity you can have up front, you want something very mechanical. We don't know sure, what the value sure. This is going to be what we don't want people arguing over the process because when people start getting into legal disputes, they start fighting over everything. So you want to build out the process so you say, okay, we're going to bring in a valuation person from XYZ firm, but if they're if they decline or their or XYZ firms no longer in business, then we're going to go to ABC firm. And if ABC firm declines, then we're going to go to third choice. You want yeah. something very, very clear, very mechanical that any third party could read and understand exactly how you're going to get to a number. Well, listen, everybody's got to want to avoid the lawsuits. And you know, I mean some sometimes you're you're talking about a whole lot of money and there's a lot of money at stake. So yeah. so these are family businesses. What about professional you know, let's say a company now has gone public and there's professional management and it's not a closely held little business anymore. Now yeah. what happens? Well, you still want to have a board of directors involved. You obviously need to have that plan in place. And, and, the, and, the, and the most proactive public companies are doing this type of planning. You know, the board of directors is running what if scenarios. What if the CEO is not there? Who do we go to? And what would be our, uh, what would be our interim plan? And then how would we have a search process? They're actually building these processes in the background yeah. and, and being proactive. And you also need to think about some unusual case scenarios. I mean, what if, you know, what if something happens at your annual meeting and you lose multiple people? What is your rebuilding process? Uh, you don't need to spend as much time on that because it's not as likely, but you, you should have a playbook of how you're going to deal with these kind of disaster scenarios so that you can keep the business moving forward because, you know, something like that could really wipe out a company and that's not what's best for the shareholders, obviously. So what do, uh, what do companies do? Do they, uh, is it, do they call uh, business consultants? Do they call attorneys? Do they call both of those? Do they call their accountant? Who, who do, who's the first phone call? What, if, if the situation happens? Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if you find yourself in a, well, there's two sides. One is right. I want to start planning. Yep. who's the call to, and we find ourselves in an emergency, who's the call to? Yeah, your planning is probably going to be a combination of a business consultant and an attorney, right? So you need somebody that's going to understand the dynamics of the board, how the board's going to work, and then what your process is going to be, and then you're going to want to yeah. put paperwork around that. You know, you probably, the most proactive companies are going to have documents waiting in place that can be executed very quickly if the situation happens. So you basically would have a file that you're going to revisit every year or two, keep fresh in the case you have one of these yeah. disaster scenarios, communicate to your shareholders immediately, bring your interim CEO in, tell the interim CEO what their role is, and then have your, your recruiting process for your next CEO. That's going to be a combination of a strategist that's going to sit down and build a process with you, plus an attorney who's going to document how it's actually going to flow 
yeah. from a legal perspective. So you, you, you really need a team there. Um, but you know, you also, you're going to need other advice too. I mean, you know, accounting becomes substantial, you know, you may have insurance payouts, you have expenses that are related to this. And so there's other things to think about as you work through the detail, but you would start probably with a strategist and an attorney to build a process. You know, it, it seems to me that the, uh, the advisor that, uh, most companies talk to the most is and most consistently is their accountant. Uh, our accountants in your experience, uh, you know, pretty up to speed on this sort of thing or, uh, do they kind of hang in the background? What, what is your experience? I've not seen many accountants get up on the ball with this. I mean, there are some good accountants out there that are thinking that far forward. You know, I just haven't seen most CPAs get to that level of detail with their clients to say, hey, we've got a plan for what happens if the CEO is not here and run through a scenario to have a real plan. Most accountants are you know, very focused on here and now and getting things done. And, and that's true of a lot of business professionals, right? There's a lot of emergent situations. You're dealing with what's happening this quarter and what's going on. But that's why these blind spots often keep coming up is because yeah. everybody's so focused on this quarter. We know people can die. I mean, people can die unexpectedly, right? Somebody could, you know, young people get in car accidents. Uh, uh, events happen, but even though we know that's realistic, people don't spend a lot of time planning for it. And that's how these blind spots keep coming up again and again and again. Now you just mentioned insurance. So, you know, so there's really, there's a couple things. So number one, you need to have a transition plan. Yep. There needs to be a management plan, but there also needs to be some money in place to uh, make sure that there's liquidity to be able to take care of these things. That's so right. Talk about that. Yeah, so you're usually going to want to get some third-party insurance. Now, what, what happens sometimes is, particularly if you have an older management team, older CEO, or people have had health issues, that may not be available, in which case we've even got to go one layer further. But assuming insurance is available, assuming we can go out and buy insurance from an insurance company for a reasonable price, you typically want to have something in place to cash out the owner's interest because their family often wants to get out of the business. And this yeah. is even more so in small businesses, but big businesses as well. And then you want some money to deal with this transition process. You're obviously going to have to go out and recruit a new person. In a larger company, public company, you're going to probably pay a bonus or a recruitment fee, relocation expenses to bring in your CEO. Sure, sure. Um, so you're going to need to build a package. And so you may want to have insurance dollars there so that you can you know, fund this expense. This, this un, insurance is supposed to be for unusual events that you can't you know, pay for out of your normal revenues. And yeah, this is kind, right. of, it's kind of the very expensive, extraordinary type of thing that could happen that you probably want to have that extra reserve for. In the unlikely case your CEO dies, you want to have some money to cash out their family, to pay all the expenses to get a new CEO and to do all the reorganization you need to do to get the company moving forward again. What, what about the situation where you don't have an extraordinary one like this, but let's just say that, uh, you know, it just, you know, the, the, the dad who kind of started the business uh, is not doing a good job anymore and it's time for him to step aside and the person doesn't want to step aside. Yeah, that can be, a, that, can, that can be a lot trickier. Um, in the best case scenarios, you've done some planning and this was thought about, you know, 10 years, 15 years in advance and you have a board, you have other people involved so that they can start stepping in. And if you've built that into your company documents, yeah. the board can start exercising more power, possibly even overruling, you know, the owner of the business to do what's best for the company and the shareholders. A lot of times that's not the case. And then this starts to get a little bit fuzzy because we're going to now have to look at the, you know, the state laws on, 
capacity and whether we can get somebody else to take control of their legal affairs. If it gets really bad, that will be a viable alternative. You can go to the court system and pull somebody and get the court to say this person's incapable of running the business. But kind of that middle ground, that marginal area, if you yeah. haven't done if you haven't done that proper planning and you don't have a plan in place, you're often stuck with the owner because legally they are the owner, they're in control. And there's not much you can do to take over their authority unless you go all the way to the direction of saying they're incapable of running their own legal. What, what are the what are the rules around capacity? I mean, it's got to be difficult to take somebody's business away from uh, from them. That's uh, right. You don't think they're competent. I mean, so, so what's the standard? Yeah, basically, the courts look at whether somebody is able to run their affairs and they're, they're going to do their own analysis. So they, they come in and they look at, you know, whether they're of sound mind whether they're able to you know, function as a normal person, whether they can make clear decision-making. So this becomes a process where somebody would actually, usually a family member, would have to petition the court and yeah. say, I, I believe you know, mom or dad is incapable of running their affairs. And then the court's going to hear testimony, uh, bring in professionals. You know, it's going to be a long process, and the court's going to take very seriously the evidence before they say, yes, this person's incapable of running their affairs, we have to put somebody in place. I mean, the clearest case would be if, if you had a doctor that said somebody had advanced Alzheimer's and you could bring the doctor to the courthouse or get a doctor's paper that tells the court, yeah. you know, mom, mom or dad has advanced Alzheimer's, you know, the court may then very easily transfer it. But normally there's going to be a process because they take very seriously taking away those legal rights from a person. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big deal. And, and what about, um, what if, what if the uh, the kids just don't think that the father or the mother is running the business in a good way? I mean, they're they're the heirs. Uh, do heirs have any rights, or are they just get what's left over and they don't necessarily have any rights? They typically gets what's left over, right? Until you inherit it, it's not yours. Um, you know, we 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 hear the horror stories in, in law school and occasionally in the news where you know somebody. Well, as they're approaching their 90th year, marries some amazing person and then dies a year later and that amazing person takes their entire estate. Yeah. And, but basically your assets are yours. While you're living, you have free reign over your assets. So unless you've set up a trust or done some kind of other uh, uh, advanced planning where you've transferred some of the rights to your children, that business is yours. So you're free to run it however you want. And that means you can run it good. You can run it bad. So if and, kids and you can money, give the money and you can give the money to anybody you want to that comes out. Right. You can give the money to anybody you want. You can give it to your board of directors. You know, you, sometimes you see these cases where somebody comes in and they take advantage of their special role in the company, right? Somebody's like close to the owner and they, you know, Oh, give me a big salary. And the owner's getting on in the years and they trust the person. They're writing a lot of big checks. These are the kinds of things you want to, think about years in advance if you can to you know try to play out these scenarios to make sure these things don't happen but unfortunately yeah. we hear the cases over and over again where somebody gets close to an older person and then milks them for money yeah and this um this whole area it, it doesn't happen so much in uh, in professionally managed companies as it does in closely held companies uh, just I, I would imagine just because of the nature of the uh, relationships of the board of directors and just the nature of the relationships. Could you comment on that for a sec? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, the theoretical view of the board of directors is they're trustees. They're there to run the company for the best interest of the shareholders. So in your, in your largest public companies, that becomes really the credo, right? And, and because of the lawsuits that happen with big public companies, when problems happen, everybody's got to document that they're doing what's best for their stockholders. So it really yeah. builds this culture of 
each director is documenting, or at least hopefully documenting, that they're doing what's best for the stockholders, which means they're considering all the information, they're making informed decisions, and they're moving forward. And when you have five, seven people that are making informed decisions that should be best for the stockholders in a rigorous process, it becomes very likely that you're making good professional-type decisions. Yeah. In private companies, we don't have that same type of rigor. Usually, under LLC agreements or other documents, the owner has a ton of power. They don't have to have other people involved, which means we're all on that one person's whim, which is why a lot of these problems happen in smaller companies, medium-sized companies, because we don't have the same rigor of analysis, the same rigor of dealing with the issues as they come up. Well, you also, uh, in, prof- in, in professionally run companies, these are professional people. They're not emotionally entangled the same way that children might be. Uh, who, who have an opinion about the mom and the dad and all the other uh, players, the cast of characters that are involved in the deal. So uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, you can see why this would all happen. So long and short, uh, what kinds of agreements do companies need? Uh, I mean, talk about disruptive. I mean, this is the kind of thing that can take a company right down. I mean, on the one hand, you know, a, a new technology can take you down, but right. it's really a shame. So can this. I mean, this can take a great company and, and put it right out of business, uh, you know, just as fast as, as anything else. So what kinds of agreements and, and what are things that, what are steps people need to take? Sure. You know, and, and, and to that point, you know, one of, one of my business friends got introduced to me a couple of years ago because she got into this exact scenario. Her father died and he had no plan in place and she had to relocate herself to go take over his business and start running it. So these are yeah. real life scenarios. What you want to be doing is doing advanced planning and thinking about how is that control going to flow. So you obviously want somebody that's in the know of the business that understands what's going on. So in the case of one one of my clients, a few years ago, we built a plan. So we brought other people in and built a board of directors. Now, because it's an LLC and and a privately held company, not publicly traded, his board of directors has limited power, but they still meet regularly and they still understand what's going on in the business. So the transition plan is if something happens to the owner of this company, is his board of directors then steps into power. They make sure the company's being run correctly, the money's flowing where it needs to flow, that the general manager is running the business, is doing the right things. Uh, his wife, you know, if you get into the scenario, his wife doesn't have to step in and run the business because she doesn't in this particular case, have the professional skills to come in and run a business. So we've really built a team that can take over and transition. And that's what you want, whether it's small, privately held, mid-sized company, you need a plan, a transition process where whoever's in control now, if they, if they die or become disabled, you have a clear process where somebody else steps into control, they take ownership, and you have checks and balances to make sure that no one person can rob the bank and leave the company, you know, without the proper resources. So, so what you're talking about, it, it, what it sounds like is that the directors are kind of a board of advisors until they get promoted to be a board of directors. That's, that's, that's what we built for this particular client. Every client can build it differently, but for a lot of privately held companies, that's a popular option. We've used that with several of our clients. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, it, it's just, it's a good balance. You have people in the know that can take over, but the, the owner still keeps the control and still understands what's going on in the business. So it, it balances a lot of conflicting interests. It's not a shock to the system for the owner and the employees, but also leaves a very real process of, of rather than somebody dying and somebody having to come in there and open up the laptop and not to be able to get the password and have to reinvent everything from 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 scratch, you have a process where People know what last quarter's financials are. They know where the company is. They know what strategic processes are going on. So the company and that value is protected for the for those for the heirs. 
So listen, so uh, let's shift gears. And as long as I've got an attorney on the phone, let's uh, let's let's open up a couple other uh, options here. So what other big issues in companies uh, related to this or not uh, do you see really causing tremendous problems? You know, a lot of people don't understand the value of their assets, particularly in this day and age. We, we're in a day and age where a lot of assets are intangible uh, and people don't understand that they have many assets in their company and they're not necessarily protecting them properly. Your customer list can be probably, for a lot of companies, that can be one of your most valuable assets, just knowing who's buying your products, how much they're buying and how to get a hold of them and being into those sales channels. Uh, I have a lot of companies that are, you know, the People come to me and they say, well, we don't have any real value. You know, if, if something happens to the owner, the company's gone. Well, just knowing who you're selling to can be an extremely valuable asset. So you don't want people, you don't want your employees stealing that, taking that out the door. You want confidentiality agreements in, in protecting that. And then also, you know, you want to make sure that you have um, processes in place to, if something happens to the owner, that if you're not going to continue the business, that you're going to sell off the valuable assets in a way that's going to create more money for the heirs. But you know, like uh, these confidence, like you mentioned confidentiality agreement or a non-compete yeah. or some other kinds of things, non-circumvention, all these, these, these different kinds yeah. of agreements. Are they really enforceable? If you've got a sales, uh, salesperson working for the company and they leave and they want to take some accounts with them, I mean, do these agreements really prevent that from happening or uh, some states, uh, you know, are, are more strict on this than others? So. Right. Yeah, well, not non-competes vary greatly by states. A lot, a lot of states are hesitant to use non-competes. So, you know, saying that somebody's not going to compete against you for a period of time may or may not work depending on which state you're in. Some states are more favorable to them. Some states aren't. Right. Confidentiality, though, however, is usually very well respected. Uh, now, the question becomes, what do you do from a damages standpoint? Uh, if somebody steals your customer list, you know, your, 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 your answer is to go after them and sue them for money, right? After they've already contacted your customers, disrupt your business. But that can be a pretty good hammer that really keeps people in line. Also, the person that hires them away from you, assuming they don't just set up their own operation, they go work for another company. If that other company knows that they had a confidentiality yeah. obligation to them, you can then bring in their new employer and go after their assets. So that can be a very powerful tool. Yeah. Um, if somebody knowingly helps somebody break the contract with you, you potentially could go after them. Yeah, those are those are uh, those are some tough things. So, um, what else? What other uh, what other uh, problems do you see? We'll just let's take one more, and then we'll kind of wind down. So, what's, a, what's yeah. another big one? A lot of people assume that just because they went out and filed their company and got their company started as an LLC or corporation, that they never have to worry about their personal liability again. And there's really a lot lot bigger layers to that. You know, in the event somebody gets hurt or there's unpaid bills. The court has to make a decision, right? Either the creditors or the people that have the claims against the company lose or the business owner loses their money. And that's really the decision they have to make. And there's a lot of different pieces that come into this analysis. But when I look at all the cases, one of the big factors that keeps coming up in these types of cases is fairness. The court's going to say, was it really treated like a company? Did you really run it like a company? Did you respect it like a company? If you did, then maybe I will protect your personal assets. But a lot of people get very sloppy with their paperwork. They stop thinking about their asset protection. They stop, you know, filing the formalities because one day they formed a company and they got a stamp from the state that said they're an LLC or corporation. And it really takes a layer more, more of that. You need to keep building those books and records. You need to respect those formalities. You need to do the right things. Otherwise, yeah. that personal liability you built your company for originally may not even be there. 
you know, one of the things I've heard some guys say, the way that you, the, the standard, the way that you kind of measure whether you're, uh, you know, using your own corporation or your own LLC as a piggy bank and you're kind of breaking the rules, would GM do something like this? Right. If General Motors uh, would, would do what you're doing, then it's probably okay. Uh, yep. If you would not, then it's probably not. And that, that's a really good standard. I mean, listen, none of us are General Motors. Uh, most of us are small or not like that. But uh, certainly the metaphor is very clear and it really makes a lot of sense. So listen, Sean, thank you. Every time I talk to an attorney, it uh, causes me to lose a little sleep at night. There's, there's a lot to worry about. And uh, I'm just glad to have guys like you in my corner. So thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. All right, man. Listen, we'll, uh, we'll catch up another time. Okay. Sounds good. Take care. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more strategies and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.